So Money Episode 1189, Leslie Zane, founder and president of brand consulting firm Triggers. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When I was working for a top baby care company, I came in and I said, I see that we all have all these moms and babies in our advertising. And I know that baby care is changing and that fathers are getting more involved. Let's put a dad, the first dad in a baby care commercial. Our guest today is known for her expertise in applying brain science to branding. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Our guest today is Leslie Zane. She is an entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of the brand consulting firm Triggers. She is a Harvard Business School graduate, TEDx speaker, writer, and thought leader. Triggers was the first brand consultancy in the United States founded by a woman. And you just heard her talk about her revolutionary idea years ago to put a man in a commercial about a baby product. Today, something we see all the time, it was her light bulb moment that wasn't so well received. She'll discuss the resistance to that idea and what lay the groundwork for starting her own company, which she did all while raising children. We go way back in time. Leslie talks about being raised by her mom, who was a Holocaust survivor. Very excited to unveil this conversation with Leslie Zane. Leslie Zane, welcome to So Money. How are you? I am good. I am so happy to be here. I love your show. And I think what you do is really important. Well, I will say the same about you. I mean, I wanted to have you on the show, not only because you are this, oh gosh, this incredible female leader who has started a company, a successful company, working mother through all of that, your background in the branding world. I think this is in some ways, a very interesting topic to talk to consumers about our audience, you know, just in terms of like how we make consumer choices and the the strategy behind branding to maybe um, get us to make certain financial choices, the science behind it, the brain science. This is all very uh, much your world, but also the personal story of, of Leslie Zane, right? How you became this founder and maybe we could start with the world we live in today, Leslie, right? I mean, I just can't get over the the devastation of not just COVID, right? But on top of that, the economic recession, and then the women who've lost so many of their jobs and livelihoods in this year, in this past, you know, now it's what are we in month 14 now of this pandemic, And so women leaving the workforce, you actually wanted to start with a piece of advice for the audience. Anyone listening who's feeling stuck, has lost their job, thinking about leaving, that there's opportunity right now, which we may not always think of in a time like this. But what is your message to maybe a woman who is feeling that pain? Well, thank you so much for asking that question, because I I just think this is a, a tremendous Uh, moment of opportunity for women. And I know it's hard to look at it that way because we see the numbers, we see the statistics. Uh, Three million women have left the the workforce. Um, We have 2.8 
points, percentage points lower participation in the labor force than we had before. And it, it sounds awful, but you know, I, I look at that and I say, hey, maybe this actually is a moment for a reinvention. I think that uh, COVID has a real silver lining, which is that we were almost just too overscheduled. Our kids were overscheduled. We had these lives where we were running and flying. And I think this is a moment for everybody to kind of take a step back and think about what do they want to do differently? What do they want to do next? And maybe this is actually going to be the next wave of small business growth for women. We certainly saw small business growth in the last recession. And uh, I agree that there are similar patterns now where, you know, where it's, it was called necessity entrepreneurship in 2008, 2009. The jobs just weren't there. <laughs> and now I think not only are the jobs not there, but we're also re realizing the way we were working wasn't working. And even if we had the job with the benefits, we're like it wasn't the way we wanted to be spending our time. We weren't be feeling valued perhaps. And I know that that's a very personal story for you too. In, in how you started your own company, you also felt sort of rejected in your roles at major companies. You had unconventional ideas and you weren't being rewarded for them. If anything, you were maybe ignored. And so um, maybe talk about your own story next about how you did just that, where maybe you found your own way. You became a CEO and that's when people started to take you seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but before I turn to myself, I just want to just say one more thing about um, women and the opportunity, which is I think everybody has something that they're really good at and that they're better at than everybody else. Maybe a teacher told you that or a family friend. And I think if women can find that specialty, because that's really what I did in my business, I became a specialist. I think we're becoming a society of specialists. You just have to kind of look around you. There's the pediatric dentist. There's the um, the, the nutritionist who specializes in ADHD. Uh, there's the sleepaway camp that's a specialist in girls' soccer and empowering girls through soccer. Think about the precision of that. And I think that that is the kind of opportunity that women can really go after here, where they do have a unique thing that they can offer. And if they lean into that, I think they can be tremendously successful. You're right. I mean, just think about the people that I interview on this show. We had a Latina money expert who's talking about financial freedom. I mean, that's really understanding an audience and their needs and just saying, this is my this is my people. And I think that there is fear sometimes in feeling like you're pigeonholing yourself or you're too niche, you're nichifying too much. But I mean, you're the branding expert. Is that even is that even uh, <laughs> a, a real problem? Not that I see, because uh, it's not that you're saying the audience is a niche audience. You're saying that by leaning into something very specific that you're better at than anybody else, you are going to bring value to the world. So you're actually not niching the market. You're just being very precise about what you do better than anybody else. So tell us about, I want you to talk about yourself now. I'm going to, uh, Triggers is your brand consulting firm. It's created more than $2 billion in revenue for several brands from McDonald's to Pepsi to Colgate. Um, and 
the approach is innovative and you started this. And so tell me about the beginnings and what prompted you to do this. Perhaps part of it was that you weren't getting what you needed out of corporate America and you wanted to write your own rules. That's exactly right. So I worked at some wonderful companies and I learned a ton there. I worked at Procter & Gamble, um, which is like the marketing place of the world, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Revlon. And what I was amazed by was that here I was at these blue chip marketing organizations and success for these businesses, for these brands was very hit or miss. And I thought, huh, that's strange. Here I am at P&G and they don't have the best practice for how to build brands and make sure they grow. I, I, I just thought that was crazy. Uh, and I, my ideas were always different from everybody else. Like I was the person in the conference room that everybody looked at like I had three heads. Um, I thought that what people say, what consumers say couldn't be trusted, that only their behavior um, could be counted. I felt that we were making a lot of superlative claims um, that I didn't feel were very effective, but I felt that indirect cues and imagery, symbols, metaphors were more powerful. I felt that we were over-reliant on incentives and discounts versus gaining true loyalty. And I also thought that um, while all of our ad agencies were telling us your brand can only stand for one thing, I felt that uh, brands actually needed to stand for multiple things. So I was like just this very unconventional thinker. And um, there was a moment in my, you know, in my corporate career where all of that came to a head. And that's when I was working for a top baby care company. I came in and I said, uh, I see that we all have all these moms and babies um, in in our advertising. And I know that that baby care is changing and that fathers are getting more involved. Let's put uh, a dad, the first dad in a baby care commercial. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I mean... That's even now. If we see that, we're like, it becomes a talking point. Like, did you see that commercial? You know, um, it's more normal now, obviously. But what what year was this? This is nineteen ninety between nineteen ninety and nineteen ninety three. I was on wow. a three year campaign to get the company to put the first father in a baby care commercial. Did they do it? Um, well, first I got a performance review. Um, that said, Leslie is too passionate about putting fathers in advertising, and this is an executional concern, not a strategic one. And that was just like a knife in my heart. I had worked at Bain & Company. I had always been told that I was incredibly strategic. I was so insulted and really hurt, but it didn't stop me because I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I kept fighting for it. I kept fighting and they finally yielded and they, they put the first father in a baby care commercial and it was the highest scoring commercial in the company's history and products started flying off the shelves. So there. Wow. And then you left. (laughs) And then I left and then I, and then I left, but, um, I had, I two very important things that came from that, you know, moment, um, which was obviously a very tough moment from a career standpoint, very upsetting. Um, it was an epiphany on two levels. First of all, 
I learned to stick to my guns and that I had good instincts and I should listen to them, continue to listen to them. I probably learned a few things about how to influence organizations since that day. Um, but I did learn that. And then the second thing is that that cue that, you know, father taking care of a baby instead of a mother taking care of a baby, I had found my first trigger. That became the foundation on, on which I built the company. And so what do you mean by triggers? Like that triggers you to, to what's, the, what's the net of that? So a trigger, uh, the way we define it, is that it's in a succinct code or cue in any of the senses. It could be a sound, it could be a visual, it could be a set of words, an image, a symbol, a metaphor, anything like just very concise, but it's packed with meaning and packed with positive associations. So when you see a father washing a baby's hair as opposed to a mother, it's a trigger. The mother taking care of the baby isn't because you've, you've seen that a million times before. Sure. But a father taking care of a baby has all these positive associations about the company that uses that trigger, about the brand that uses that trigger. It's progressive. Mm -hmm. It's on the, the cutting edge. That's the kind of family I want. Hey, he's pretty cute. I'd like to have a husband that looks like that and, and so on. So there's just all this meaning that already exists in your brain and so you're leveraging that. The, the brand is leveraging all of those existing associations, anchoring the brand to that. And it makes your brand uh, get elevated in terms of people's perceptions. What were some of the comments, the pushback in the boardroom when you were trying to execute on this? Um, just curious. What, what were they throwing out there? Like, oh, this is, we're not ready for this. This is not ideal. Like, what was it? What, what was the pushback? Our research doesn't show any of that. Um, it's only women who, it's still mostly women who buy these products. And so we should reflect the people who are buying the product in the advertising. You know, they didn't understand that the image of seeing, you know, a man, uh, even just the visual contrast of the strong male body versus this, you know, tiny, tender little, in, you know, infant, even that was this incredible visual contrast that was very captivating. But again, these are, you know, subjective things that didn't come out in the very hardcore conscious metric research that the company was capturing. So I was going on my gut and then I, you know, decided that I, I needed to actually create a system, a process around this so that it wouldn't be just this random event that somebody would just, oh, happen to find a trigger. But I, I wanted to institutionalize success and have a process that would help companies find these magical triggers every time, not just once in a blue moon. So I'm so curious right now in the world that we live in today, maybe even also, uh, impacted by COVID, what are some triggers that have we have yet to experience or we sh that advertisers, brands should be uh, implementing in their brand? So because that's kind of where the zeitgeist is, but maybe the research isn't showing it yet. Oh, such a great question. So um, we have discovered that there's this huge web 
of associations um, and memories that have been built up during COVID. We actually call it the COVID Connectome. Um, it's this network of associations that are all interrelated. And we found that it has two separate branches, two clusters. One is all around preservation. And you saw that very much take over, you know, over the course of 2020, where we were all hunkering down and protecting ourselves and um, our survival instinct, you know, came came into play there. We're cooking at home and we're buying up toilet paper and we're hoarding. And there was just a whole um, ream of behaviors that was associated with that. And, and that became very dominant, that part of the brain became very dominant over the course of 2020. But there's this other cluster that's all about perseverance, making progress. And it's, it's driven by the, the other need we have, which is to move forward in our lives. That part of our brains was sort of less developed during uh, covid um, and we need to get back to that in order for the economy to recover. I talked about this in my Newsweek article a few months ago. Um, we actually need to build associations on the perseverance side so that we can move forward and travel again and, and go on business trips and, and make our, our vacation plans uh, and hold those birthday parties and family gatherings and weddings and all the things that we put off. So what, what companies actually need to do is they, on the one hand, need to make people feel safe to cater to that preservation side, and they simultaneously need to build inspiration and motivation with cues and codes related to perseverance and striving and moving forward. Because the more people see that and see other people doing those things, traveling and making parties and, and all that kind of st good stuff... Um, the more we'll we'll want to do to, we'll want to do it. So perhaps uh, narratives of courage, perseverance, fighting odds, a lot of that, you know, sort of seeing someone who you is you feel reflected in, like, okay, that person is scared, but they did the thing anyway. And, yeah. and look at the reward, right? They got all of this greatness at the end of that. Um, so it was worth it. There was payoff. A hundred percent. That's exactly right. Well, take us back to the early days, Leslie, of, you know, I don't know if you were already a mom at the time when you started Triggers, uh, but talk about your approach to motherhood and work. I know that was something you really wanted to um, communicate on the podcast because I think that's so you know, important now as many moms are feeling stuck and it's not their fault. But um, how did you do it? back then. So or what's your advice? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a better question. Yeah. In hindsight. It's look, it's a, it's, it's a tough one. I'm, I'm not going to lie as a working mother. Um, so yes, I was a working mother. I started my company actually just at the time that I had my first child. Uh, so, so that was interesting. I remember, you know, breastfeeding and writing my business plan at the same time. Um, I feel like back then I had those feelings of guilt of being torn between two worlds. When I was at work, I felt I should be at home uh, with my kids. And when I was at home with my kids, I felt like I should be working. Um, so I was like, always had this sense of dissatisfaction. 
But looking back on it now, now I'm on the other end of it. My sons are 21 and 26, and they are both ambitious and hardworking. I think that uh, I they learned a lot from just seeing me as a role model, and I think all that worry that I that I had back then about you know not being enough of either of those two things, you know, sort of never doing either of them well, um, was was un- unfounded. They turned out great. Um, they've got a great sense of values. Um, I think I raised them very much the way my mother raised me, which we can talk about in a, in a moment, um, which is without a sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that has, has it's, it's all, it's all worked out. And so I think we spend a lot of time worrying as, as moms that we're not, you know, good enough. We're not per- perfect enough. We're not, you know, super women, but I think what we do, um, it, 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 it all, it, it all turns out. Okay. It is. Well, how, how would you characterize your upbringing? What was it like? And then what did you learn about money? Maybe even as a kid? Yeah. So, um, my mother, um, uh, survived the Holocaust. So she was seven years old when she came to this country from Antwerp, Belgium. Her father, uh, put the whole family in a freighter, got a freighter to take them across the ocean. And, um, on the second night that the boat was traveling, they were hit by, uh, a, a, sh- a German submarine, a U-2, boat and they the boat um went down the, the the freighter sank and they were you know they were rushed into lifeboats and my mother was sat in the middle of the ocean for 8 days and 8 nights at 7 years old with her parents in a lifeboat with 24 sailors without any food or water mm. so that's my mother's background wow. now you can only imagine w- what that means in terms of how you're going to raise your your children. You know, that was obviously a life-changing event for her, and it had a very strong impact on everything in her life. Um, they never took any risks of any kind. They didn't like to travel. Um, we went to the same restaurant. <laughs> we didn't, you know, we just, maybe <laughs> other people would have just said, oh, well, we're just going to do everything different and go on a big adventure. That's not how it hit um, my mother. Um, we were all just about playing it safe. You know, she worries, she worries all the time. Um, so it was about hard work, no risk taking, spending as little as possible. And I think a moment that I remember very, um, that was very powerful in my early life. I was probably around six years old and we went to the corner store. My mother was buying some stationery. I went with her. I loved going in there because they had little trinkets and baubles that, that children love. And I walked up to my mother and I said, can I have this? And she said, um, is it your birthday? And I said, no. And she said, is it Hanukkah? And I said, no. She said, well then no gift. And from that, I learned that to get what I want in life, I'm going to have to earn it. Nothing's coming to me. I have to make it happen. And I think while a lot of other people, and particularly I think in this generation, um, you know, inadvertently raise their kids with a, a sense of entitlement. I'm not saying they do it on purpose. They, they, everybody means well, but we do tend to spoil our kids today. 
Um, I was raised without a sense of entitlement. I was raised with a sense of self-determination. And I think that had a big impact. That's incredible. I mean, that's just, I'm so happy that she got to be your mom. You know, you got to both experience each other. And how would you describe, Leslie, your relationship with money? Because it's not the healthiest to like save, 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 right? That that was a reaction, which is understandable. A lot of people who like experienced the depression also had that same approach and their children. But what would you say? Has there been a um an evolution? Has there are you more or less the same still? Are you a big saver? So uh, I have definitely had uh, a tremendous evolution. So um, the good part of that upbringing was that was that sense of self-determination. The downside was, you know, what I had to unlearn. And what I had to unlearn is that, you know, if you're always trying to spend as little as possible, you miss a lot of opportunities because in business, you need to spend money to make money. That's an old saying, but it's absolutely true. And the thing I most had to learn was how to invest in myself. I learned that the hard way. In the year 2000, I will confess to you that along with a lot of other people, um, even though my business was doing really well, we took the money and profits from my company, my husband and I, and we invested in telecommunication stocks. And anybody who knows what happened in that period knows that telecommunication stocks went down to zero. So um, I had this metaphor in my head all the time that I was basically handing bags of money over to my husband and my financial advisor, and it was turning into sand and slipping through their fingers. So I was doing what I was supposed to do, but on the other end, it was all just disappearing. Um, and I said, what am I, what am I doing? I know very little about these companies. I know very little about these industries that I just invested in. I have a healthy business with tremendous potential. I know a lot more about myself as a leader than I know about them. Hey, why don't I just invest in my company? And I started doing that. But it was, it only came from really the school of, of hard knocks. Wow. And Oh my gosh. So what was like the first thing that you invested in your, like, how did you invest that money? What was, what was the first thing that you did with it? I started hiring some additional consultants, Mm. um, and you know, spending on developing our branding and, you know, hiring a digital strategist and, and so on. Um, so, but that it, 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 it's not something that I think we are automatically, um, educated to do, uh, particularly as, as women to invest in ourselves. Um, and I understand that along the way, also you learned that you were underpricing yourself. So, you know, investing in the business is one thing, but also charging enough is important too, to, to bring in the value that is deserved. How did you come to that realization? How did, was there a moment where you're like, oh my gosh, my competitors are getting paid more or, you know, someone told you? Yeah, this was a, a, a tremendous epiphany uh, for us. Um, I, I do think that women undersell ourselves all the time. We undervalue what we do. Um, Basically, we were probably charging 25% of what we needed to be charging. 
And it took a client telling me that. So we did this project. Um, we followed a giant multinational consulting firm whose name starts with an M. Um, I'm sure you know who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the chief marketing officer came out after we had finished our project and said, oh my God, you guys are amazing. Um, so many other consulting firms have taken a crack at this and nobody was able to turn around the business. The business had been declining for 20 years and we came in and we used our triggers approach and it worked and the business turned around and they started growing again. Um, and they had, you know, multiple months of consecutive healthy growth and the others hadn't moved the needle. And he, he basically said, um, you know, we spent $7 million on this other firm. They didn't move the needle. We spent a fraction of that on you and you turned around your business, our business. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember what I said at that moment because, you know, that's like one of the, like in the movies, like when you like. Everything's in slow motion. <laughs> Everything's the in slow motion playing. and you're hearing music and you're like in another world. But I just thought what an idiot I am. Oh my God. Our work is better, more effective, and I am charging a fraction of what everyone else is is charging. And what I realized from that, um, and I knew it as a brand person, but I just didn't know it for myself, is that you can't just think about price as a number. Price is a signal of quality. In our case, it was a signal of effectiveness. And, and we should know that, right? Because we, we will spend $50 on a jar of skin cream from Estee Lauder or Lancome and only $10 on the, the jar from Olay. Um, but price is not just about quantity. You actually have to think of it as a, commu- a communications vehicle. It's a sign of your value. And we were undervaluing ourselves. And I've been in that case. I've been in those in that shoe. Not to not the seven million dollars um, wake up call, but you know, hearing about what others in my sphere might have charged, and I look and they they got no results for the client. It's good information at the very least. Like, okay, good to know. I'm going to put that in my back pocket because the next time I negotiate, I have a reference point. Just because that that client got seven million dollars. Does that mean that the work is actually worth $7 million? That's a, that's a question. It obviously wasn't. And we didn't right. go and then start charging $7 million. Does that million mean dollars? you're worth $7 million, right? Is that is that the new bar now? Because you found out someone else made $7 million and didn't do the work. But so now you're at least worth $7 million. <laughs> well, You're at least worth like seven times seven. How do you measure up against that metric? What do you, what was like the next time you went out there? Like, did you charge that seven million or did you charge, you don't have to tell me specific numbers. But. No, we, we did not charge the seven million because I, I think that that's atro- yeah, like atrocious. Right, right. right. I mean, so I there's atrocious. Right. But I absolutely did increase our prices. Um, and I tried to un- to keep remembering that I need to price according to the value delivered, not some random number that I think somebody else has in, in their head. But I, I do think that women um, very often do undersell themselves because of some, I think, psychological things that go on in our heads, like, oh, I'm, it's going to be considered too aggressive, or I don't want to impose, or I want to be liked, or I want them to think I'm I'm nice. I mean, <laughs> you know, really yeah. silly things that have no role 
in, in the world of business, but we get caught up in those. And again, I think they're unconscious. I think they're subconscious. Um, we don't consciously think about them, but I think it, it has the impact of making us very often underprice ourselves. Well, you are the expert of the subconscious, <laughs> Leslie. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us to talk a little bit about your background, your tenacity, starting your company. I mean, these stories are going to stay with me for a while. You gave us so many gifts in this 30 minutes. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It was such a, such a joy to be here with you today. Thanks so much to Leslie for joining us. You can learn more about her at triggers.com. And on the So Money Podcast website, I'll include links to Leslie's articles. See you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. I hope your day is so money. So money.